0: Oh, great to be with you all this morning. Um, We are uh, going to take a brief break from our study of the book of Genesis between now and Easter. Sorry, Jock. Yeah. Hey, that's good to know. You guys are enjoying Genesis. That's great to know. Um, So we're going to take a brief break as we are preparing our minds and hearts these last few weeks of the season of Lent. And we're going to let... Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount guide us as we um, engage what traditionally for the church is a season of self-examination and uh, really laying before the Lord our hearts and minds and uh, discerning what what in me am I holding back from the Lord and the good news about the words of Jesus is just about any Um, Any statement he makes, you spend enough time with it and it it demands all of you. It brings your entire heart into uh, the light. So I hope that that's what he will do with grace and tenderness for us as we look at the Sermon on the Mount together. So let's prepare our hearts to hear the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5. When he saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are you, when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, because your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its flavor, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on by people. You are the light of the world. A city located on a hill cannot be hidden. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they can see your good deeds and give honor to your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, as we listen to you, we also uh, hear our brothers and sisters preparing for worship upstairs, and we we thank you for the privilege of gathering amongst your people, Lord, both in this room and throughout this building, we ask that your spirit would pour out on the, the people of God this morning, all throughout Littleton and Centennial and Inglewood and Sheridan and South Denver, Highlands Ranch, Lord, pour out on your people as they worship you this morning and have your way in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, like I said, the season of Lent is a time where we take stock of our own hearts and minds, our lives, and we seek to follow Jesus more fully. Now later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will describe the life of following him uh, in this way. He'll say his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And that's, gosh, what a what a lovely promise that if we come to him, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Um, one author describes that as as putting you know taking off a, a you know a lead vest and putting on a life jacket. That's, that's the effect of his yoke and his burden. And yet, when we look at the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the commands of Jesus, sometimes easy is not exactly the word that we would use to describe what we're looking at, what we're hearing. Um, and I, I think perhaps we need to, well, think about that word easy. Uh, if, if by easy we mean, well, it, it demands very little change of us. If by easy we mean uh, you can generally live your life and with some minor tweaks, there you go. You know, it's, it's user-friendly. If that's what we mean by easy, then we're about as far away from the words of Jesus as we can get. But if by easy we mean as we go about following him, we discover a peace and a freedom and a life that we never could have had any other way, then I think that's exactly what he means by easy. The thing is we get that on the other side of taking on his yoke and his burden, on the other side of leaving ours behind. And that brings us to the Sermon on the Mount. So you've just heard the famous opening of what is surely the most famous sermon ever preached. It's got to be. It, you know, I don't have any stats to prove that. It's got to be the most influential, most famous sermon ever preached. It has been translated into every language it could possibly be, not quite every language on earth, but close. The stringent... Challenges that will be found later in the sermon come in the wake of this; these amazing promises that started about who is blessed and what will happen to them. It's a picture in the blesseds of what the world should be, the world as it should be, the world that has been set to rights, a world that has been healed of harms, in which the mourners are comforted and the meek inherit the earth. Something about that just sounds right in the core of our being. There's there's no doubt the commands that follow are mortally difficult. They're deadly challenging, but they all ring with a sweetness because they reflect a world in which the poor in spirit possess the kingdom of God. Whatever that means, something about it just feels right. This is comfort dripping off of the lips of Jesus. I think it's fading across society, but the ethical ideals of the Sermon on the Mount have enjoyed broad respect, both within the community of faith and without. I mean, who denies the wisdom of the golden rule? It's taught in schools, right? That's found in the Sermon on the Mount. And many today cling to the, the prohibition that we'll talk about next week against judgment. You know, they may not apply it quite right, but they cling to it, you know. And yet, I don't know that many people are willing to see the whole, the big picture, the This is not merely a nice collection of wise advice that applies to anyone. The one who is speaking this sermon assumes the right to bequeath the kingdom of God on his listeners. In other words, he is implying that he has the authority to distribute the kingdom. That's striking. He says that those who are mistreated on his account are the same as the prophets of the Old Testament who were mistreated. Why? Because they were speaking the words of God. They were speaking for God. Jesus said that following him, it, it comprised, it's comprised of being in covenant with his people. That's what he, he said when he told his disciples to go out and, and baptize the nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bring them into covenant with his people. It also is comprised of learning to obey his commands, teaching others to do so, and sharing it all with the world as we remember that he is with us always. So this week and for the next couple weeks, we're going to sample a few of the commands that are found in the Sermon on the Mount so that we can together can learn to obey everything that Jesus commanded us. I mean, this sermon is undoubtedly the densest collection of his commands, I think, anywhere in the Gospels. I mean, there's so many commands that he gives to us, but, but how do you identify a command of Jesus? A- after all, it, the, he says a lot of things. He, he, he makes statements that feel like they expect a lot of us, but they're not necessarily commands. And I think in the Sermon on the Mount, and generally in most of what Jesus says in the Gospels, you can put his words into two major categories. It's not quite perfect. There's some things that don't quite fit, but into two major categories. One category I would call principles. In other words, he's giving the spiritual laws of physics. This is the way things work in the world that God created. And they're, they're often surprising. You know, what's, The laws of physics. I'm always aware that like half of you are engineers, so whenever I talk about stuff like this, I'm like in danger. But you know, gravity—32 feet per second per second—is that right? Okay, you know, that's close. All right, I gotta. mm. All right, good. You know, these are these are okay. These are rules about how the world works. Well, Jesus presents in many places in the Sermon on the Mount. This description of how things really work and most of the beatitudes are that it, they're like I said they're surprising but he's just saying hey the the poor in spirit they're blessed they're they're supremely happy that's what the word blessed means and that's actually what the word beatitude means extremely supremely happy they're they're blessed because insofar as they're poor in spirit they possess the kingdom of god that's a striking statement but he's just saying that's the way things are that's how it works so throughout the throughout the the speech of jesus you can see a bunch of principles this is the way things work and I, I, we don't need to get into grammar and you know talking about the 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 imperative mood versus other moods but we don't need to get into that i think Anyone who's carefully reading the commands of Jesus will notice, or the, the words of Jesus will notice, that at times, he makes a demand on us. And those demands, when he says, do this, those are the commands of Jesus. And I would encourage any one of you, you know, to set aside your devotional life for a year or more, and just... Slowly process the commands of Jesus. Read through the Gospels. Find anywhere where he makes a statement that is a a demand, a a command, a way that he's calling us to live, and just hold that up as a mirror to your life. Let it fill multiple journals in your life. So, tucked into the grand opening that we just read, we actually find the first two commands of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to turn our attention to these for the rest of the time. The first eight lines of the sermon all start with the word blessed. Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm not doing them in order, but blessed, 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 blessed. The ninth starts with the same word. But here's the deal. For eight lines, Jesus has been sort of talking about things generally. He's been giving principles without addressing anyone, you know. It may comfort people who feel poor in spirit, who feel spiritually discontent. They're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. or, Or it may comfort people who are mourning to hear this guy say this. But he's saying it in the third person. Blessed are the poor in spirit for they, you know. Blessed are the, for they, blessed are the, for they. And then all of a sudden, it's like he brings his eyes down and he locks onto his audience. Hi, And he says, and blessed are you when you are persecuted, when when people say, when you're insulted, when people say all kinds of evil things falsely about you on my account. Blessed are you. And then he gives his first command. Rejoice and be glad. That's a command. That's said in the mood. Grammatically, that is a command. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. They they treated the prophets the same way. What a remarkable command he gives. It's like... He's been saying this is how the world works and this is how you're going to experience it. You're going to experience it first in the form of insults and persecution and false accusations. Now, the words rejoice and be glad, they're plain enough. I don't need to stand up here and define rejoice and be glad for you. I don't. Except... um, We kind of get that you rejoice and you're glad as a reaction to things, right? When circumstances are good, you rejoice and you're glad. You know, a a new healthy baby is born. We're st- we as a community, we're, we're rejoicing that that James Newhall is is out. <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't expect that. Um. Yeah. <clears throat> you know we're... Okay, we're, we rejoice when something that we've lost, that we find it. Yay, my keys! You know, we, we rejoice. We rejoice when our team wins the big game, when, when the job offer comes through. We rejoice when the deal closes. And, and we're glad in all kinds of times. We're glad when it's a sunny day. You know, we can go sit outside. We're, we're glad when we order fries and they're particularly delicious. Right, all sorts of things make us glad. We got it, but but being insulted and, and falsely accused and persecuted, well, those aren't exactly the circumstances that make us rejoice. Like that, rejoicing and gladness are not an automatic response to those things. I don't know that I've ever experienced really direct, obvious persecution. Um, you know, people insult me usually just to get a laugh, not not because they really dislike me. I've, I've experienced false accus- accusation rarely, but it's terrible. And I'll tell you right now, my natural reaction was about as far away from rejoice and be glad as it could be. Why? Why, why, why would Jesus expect this? Well, his first answer to why we can react to such circumstances is because... Our reward is great in heaven. But what, what does that mean? Our reward is great in heaven. Now, first of all, I just want to highlight again that he's claiming the authority to give heavenly rewards. I mean, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the thing that a lot of people who don't even believe in Jesus say, that's great advice. They miss the fact that the guy speaking is saying, I've got heavenly rewards for you. He's claiming that people mistreated on his account are in the same category as the prophets. Right here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is claiming to be God. Right in this, right in this statement. But what are these rewards? I, I, I guess I, I haven't been thoughtful until recently about these rewards. I, I've, I, I've always thought of it as sort of a deposit into my sort of afterlife retirement account isn't that generally like you hear someone say your rewards are great in heaven jewels in your crown you know getting a bigger heavenly mansion or something like we think of it as like something that's waiting for us something that you know after you die like oh boy that person was persecuted a lot on jesus's accounts but even just the words themselves don't fit with that he doesn't say your reward will be great eventually in that celestial place where there's angel babies flying around. No, he's talking about something that is. Your reward is great. I think we get tripped up with that idea of heaven, that word heaven, because we connect heaven to afterlife. But Jesus doesn't actually connect heaven afterlife, not very often anyway, all through the sermon he's talking about the kingdom of heaven all of his teaching is repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near it's at hand, there's something close, he's bringing it with him, he's bringing God's authority and God's presence near, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, Mark and Luke talk about the kingdom of God it's the realm of his rule the power that Jesus brings with Him. So what was true about the prophets? You know, rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. For they treated the prophets the same way. Okay, what was true about the prophets? Well, they had it rough most of the time. But they were near to God. I think of the prophet Elijah. He's... He's in such a mess. You know, he's he's ticked off this wicked queen Jezebel and he's fleeing for his life and he's living in the mountains and he's hungry and all of a sudden, birds, ravens start bringing food to him. Another time he's up hiding and he's up in the the cleft of a mountain and God comes near to him and says, what are you doing here? God passes before him. He's near to the presence of God. Look, sometimes I read this stuff and I think, maybe the best way to do it is fake it till you make it, you know? Like, it's great. Thanks for insulting me. You know? Like, so uh, maybe, but, you know, I don't know. It's it, Honesty and authenticity, those things are important. They're, we've probably made them almost too important, like, Just be how you feel all the time. But but if we see with eyes of faith, as we grow to follow Jesus more closely, I think that when we're in a situation where those things are happening truly on his account, we're experiencing something of his presence that's unlike what you would experience any other time in any other place. What greater reward could there be than the nearness of God? You know, set aside all of the harps that you imagine about heaven, and heaven, the greatness of heaven is the nearness of God. He's there. What greater reward could there be? Well, that brings us to the second commandment found in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's another principle. That Jesus gives right after he finishes all the blesseds he looks at his people and he's still addressing them and he says you you are the salt of the earth you are the light of the world and he he describes you know salt the uses of salt and the uses of light you know the, the um, and we could talk about all that and you, if you've been around churches for More than a few years, you've probably heard somebody give great descriptions of that. But after he sort of describes the proper use of salt and light, he goes on to say, let your light shine before people. There's the second command, you guys. The first one, rejoice and be glad. The second one is, let your light shine before people. Now, notice, he does not say, so get really bright, be light, make light, and shine it. (laughs) It's, it's, It's a step removed, right? Let your light shine. It's frustrating to me because I've spent so many years like thinking about, well, church, you know, unfortunately in our society, Little churches like this are kind of like small businesses and you're like advertising and doing Facebook things and just social, you know, other social media and, and we're recording this sermon and someday you happy listeners on the internet will be enjoying this, you know, our millions and millions of listeners um, will be enjoying we, we think about, like, we think about how to shine our light a lot. But Jesus is more saying, don't Cover up the light that you have. Let it do its thing. Let, let's look at this more deeply. Look, we've been, we've been reading the book of Genesis for a while now, and the truth is, you know, I, I've, I've always been pulling you guys' attention to the Exodus, but if, if you have been following the sermons, we're really reading the book of Genesis in the light of the gospel, right? We always start in Genesis and end in Jesus, well, so, and that's helping us understand Genesis better. But what if we read Jesus in light of Genesis? Check this out. Let your light shine sounds suspiciously like words at the very beginning of Genesis, doesn't it? Let there be light. A, a few of us right now are reading this great book by Andy Crouch called um, called Playing God. It's uh, about power, about the use of power and andy reflects on these those opening words of genesis you see when god creates light he doesn't say you know some more direct verb about light i didn't write a good one down make light i demand light he invites light into being let there be light in the in the hebrew grammar that verb is called a jussive verb you know it's so you can Write that down and so you learned something new. Adjustive verb. And what adjustive verb is, is it's giving permission to something. In fact, it's empowering something. It's inviting something to happen. When God creates, when he says, let there be, he's giving permission for life to just spring forth. He speaks in a way that the light, the creation can... Participate in creation, and isn't that what light does? Doesn't light cause growth and and health? And I'm not just talking about photosynthesis. I'm t- I mean, even in us, we need it. And now, as Jesus begins to describe life in his kingdom, he speaks a lot like God. Right? You know, he says, "Let let your light shine." He gives permission. All the creative, life-giving power of light, it can happen through us. It can happen through us. But as as I've been reflecting on this, there's a word that in the midst of this command that I, I just, I keep getting stuck on, I keep tripping over, and it's a word that shows up twice. It's a word that you might not notice. It's the word your. Let your Light shine. Your light. What? I, I, look, I've argued already that Jesus is not so subtly equating himself with God in this sermon, right? So then he goes on to say, "It's our light." He like it, the theologians would be much happier if Jesus said, "Let God's light shine through you." We could write books on that, baby. Oh yeah, like let God. That's great, you know. But instead, his followers get to be agents of his regeneration. Insofar as we're near him and and with him, his light is our light. It's so generous. Steward the light of God, we'd say, if it was his light, put him on display. But here is a God who is who is generative with his gifts. He gives gifts that make more gifts. He's so free with it. It's so abundant that it spills into our own possession. His light becomes our light. But friends, that's not the only your in this sentence, all right? Um, If we can go to command number two, Georgia. Um, Sorry, I didn't tell you about any of the slides here. Look, that's not the only your here. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they can see your good deeds and give honor to your Father in heaven. Your Father. We're so used to talking to God that way. We've spent a lot of time in the history of this church looking at the Lord's Prayer and how Jesus teaches us to pray our Father, and that's part of this sermon. That's part of the Sermon on the Mount. So, But this is the place where it hits first. This is the first time on the lips of Jesus where he says that we should think of God as our Father. And we don't realize what a crazy deal that is. We don't realize how shocking that is. But these are Israelites. These are people who have the law of Moses and the prophets. They don't even say God's proper name aloud. If they see God's proper name written, Yahweh, they say the word for Lord that's why it's lord in capital letters throughout the old testament i mean they are so careful with getting too familiar with god and here is jesus just as a as an aside in the midst of this command about talking about letting god's light shine saying your father and everyone is like what our my, who are you talking about right now are you talking about the creator god of the universe cuz take it easy man like we're not that cl- we're not that close to him i mean it, in a word he has adopted his listeners into the royal family with a the word they have a new reality a new identity listen what does this mean i know a lot of a lot of people grow up with Pain related to their dads, resentment, embarrassment, um, great pain connected to their dads. And that that's not my story. My dad's not perfect, probably, um, but as far as I'm concerned, he sets the curve for men. He does. Uh, so many of you know my dad. Anyone who gets to know my dad discovers a new meaning of humility and excellence. And brilliance and kindness and generosity, and the more you get to know them, the more you see of it. I'm 40 years in, and I'm still seeing more of it. Frankly, at 40 years in, I, I still have no shame saying that I'm deeply motivated to make my dad proud. Like, if my dad's proud of something I did, I figure, well, I probably did something right, you know? When I love my kids the best, I know how you can trace that behavior back, back to my dad. Now, you can take that concept. You know that that's the ideal, right? I, all of you who are dads, I hope, I hope that your kids say that about you. I hope. Seek that, but you can multiply all of that by infinity, and get close to. What is implied when Jesus talks about God as our Father? I mean, the good deeds people see in Jesus' followers, they will hinge on this monumental promise that is hiding behind the word your. Such a simple word. But he's our Father. We're his children. And he's different than we've ever dreamed. He's a God who favors the poor in spirit. Not the impressive. Impressive. He's a God who comes near to those who mourn, not not just hanging out with the people who are celebrating. In other words, he's the type of father who runs toward his kids when they're broken, worn down, tired, and in pain. That's the kind of dad he is. And that fills us with light. That gives us light. A light of love and acceptance, the very light that drives out our dark fear, our judgments, our resentments. This command is hardly a command, even though it's written as a, the verbs are a command, but it's hardly a command. It's an invitation. We let our light shine. It's like pulling the shades, you guys. Those who are adopted into the kingdom of the blessed poor, we only need to be transparent. God's light is bright and beautiful, and he's going to give it to us at great cost. He's going to pay a high price to adopt us into his family. Look, we're about to come to this table. And it's just striking to me that the, the symbol that Jesus gave us to participating in his life and being refreshed in him is eating and drinking. It's just, it's, it's, it's amazing to me. Yeah, come on back in, kids. Welcome. Because here's what happens when you when you eat and drink, you swallow it, you chew it up and swallow it, and your body absorbs it into you. Friends, you are what you eat. Like this is this is going to become part of you. And and if you think about that process and you think about what is, you know, What Jesus is saying when he holds up the bread and he holds up the wine, it's remarkable. him saying, this is my body and this is my blood. He is saying, you get to become part of me. My body and my blood will become your body and your blood. My light will become your light. And as we experience that, we start to see the whole world from from a different measure. We're no longer thinking about whether it's great or bad if we got insulted today. We're thinking about everything in the the scale of our nearness to him. This is what he offers us. Friends, the commands of Jesus, they do demand everything of us. Rejoicing and being glad when something seemingly quite bad happens to you, that means you need to turn your entire scale upside down. It demands everything of you. Letting your light shine means setting aside all the other stuff that you're trying to show off. It demands everything of you. And yet it is so free. It's such liberty that he's offering to us. These aren't heavy burdens. They're total freedom. So listen to what Jesus says. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread And when he had given thanks for it, he broke it. And he said, take this and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, we are remembering the price that he paid to adopt us into his family so that we can rejoice and be glad at the nearness of him and let his light shine. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you for offering yourself to us. And Lord, I pray that as this bread and wine and grape juice become part of of our bodies, I pray, Lord, that we would display your glory to the world around us. Lord, that even in our simple deeds, our our helping somebody out, Lord, that it would be done with the sort of love and generosity that oozes out of you. So, Lord, thank you for Offering yourself to us today. Thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. In Jesus' name, amen. So friends, as we sing together, I invite you to come and receive the bread, which is the body of Christ given for you, and dip it in the cup, which is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's worship as we come.